Welcome. You're listening to the Best Tech Practices for Small Organizations podcast. I'm your host, Taylor Wells. This podcast is presented by NW Techs and is designed to educate small and medium-sized organizations on the best practices for managing their IT. We cover topics ranging from cybersecurity to business communication to file storage to working remotely. In this episode, we're continuing our series titled Law Firms and Technology. In this series, we're highlighting law firm leaders from around the world and learning from their experience in managing technology and cybersecurity risks. I have the privilege of talking to Daniel Siegel. Mr. Siegel is the principal of the law offices of Daniel Siegel, LLC. He handles matters that keep attorneys awake at night. He regularly represents attorneys with and provides, number one, ethical and techno-ethical guidance on a wide range of areas. Number two, serves as a trial and a plaintiff counsel, handling the drafting of pleadings and briefs, as well as oral arguments and related services. He also handles workers' compensation, personal injury, and general litigation matters. Mr. Siegel is also an author of 14 books. Thanks for being on the show today, Mr. Siegel. Thank you for having me. Fantastic. Let's jump right into the questions. The first one is really all around what are you personally excited about when it comes to technology, transformation, and utilizing technology in the wrong uh, way? That's, that's a good question because I actually wear two hats. I run my law firm and I also do technology consulting for law firms on workflow. So when we look at technology here, whether it's in my office or someone else's, it's always making certain that what we're doing is making us and anyone we work with more efficient in workflow, in software, in that can be their hardware, while also focusing them and the attorneys and law firms on the areas of security, cybersecurity, and how they intersect with legal ethics. Because nowadays, you can't talk about ethics in law firms without talking about technology. Uh, they go together more than they ever have. Thanks for sharing. Yeah, you, you, you piqued my interest on a couple topics there. The first one being being really all around efficiency, what types of tools, whether it's practice management software or cloud-based services, what type of tools have you found recently that have helped make law firms exponentially more efficient? Well, it's interesting because uh, a lot of what we use are the same types of tools that we used years ago, but far more advanced. So I began using what is known as case or matter management software, for example, in 1991, which is way before most law firms did. And that kept me working even in a far more primitive, and that was a Unix-based system, but it kept me able at that time to handle 200 plus files and litigation at the same time. We still use the same types of software, but they're far more advanced so we can customize them to our practice areas. And since now, you know, in 1991, and certainly not the years before when I graduated law school, we didn't have the cloud, we didn't have those areas. So now, you know, we're able to work with that type of technology um, on-site, off-site, access information anywhere we need to be. So we use that and we still use good old reliable products like Outlook, Adobe Acrobat, things like that, and then mix in uh, litigation tools since I am primarily a litigator, don't do a lot of transactional work. And those tools still move us forward because they keep getting better. 
Uh, they keep adding features. They keep adding different ways of doing things. I just finished writing an article about how most users don't realize that the software they already own can do far more than what they think it can do and that they often don't have to buy anything else because they're just underutilizing what they already have. Mm, fascinating. Thanks for sharing. Tell me about in regards to efficiencies and workflow, what areas do you see organizations struggling in the most when it comes to technology? What pieces, when you counsel a, a law firm or you work with a law firm starting out with them, what piece do they usually miss? Is it that they're not utilizing the tools right in front of them or is it is it something else? It's It can be both, uh, but to me, everything, and, and I'm, let me take a step back. Uh, when I started practicing, I opened up and I had no clients. I assumed they would come and eventually they did. But as I got busier, I was still a solo until I could afford staff. And people would say to me, how are you getting so much done while still getting home for dinner? Um, and I was, you know, generally home for dinner every night. Um, and I wear a few hats outside of this, you know, like most lawyers do. And the answer was using technology efficiently. And that's the key. But nowadays, in most law firms, where they run into the speed bumps that really do slow them down is they're not using tools that allow them to analyze their cases and their documents more efficiently. It could just be Adobe Acrobat. It could be other things. But they're still practicing mentally as though everything is a physical file without mm -hmm. recognizing that you can accomplish more by digitizing your file, working properly on a computer, and still when you need to look at the paper there's an over-reliance on the paper and once they transform and learn how to really get the max out of what they have they're much more efficient very cool what are some from your personal practice i'd love to hear about areas that maybe in the past year or two it sounds like you've always been ahead of the curve or tried to be ahead of the curve what are some roadblocks that you've overcome when it comes to technology where you had a sticky a sticky issue or something technology wise that wasn't working well that you were able to find a solution for for you personally what we do our office and since we're small we can be more nimble but over the last 2 to 3 years some of our practice areas have changed or sort of morphed. And that's partly because of the changes in the legal market, the changes in the way firms get cases, et cetera. So we've sort of redirected our practice in certain ways. And in to do so, the only way to do it was to take the tools we had and customize them in ways we hadn't done before. Most people will, or most law firms tend to like to use everything out of the box. Well, out of the box is how some geek who works for Microsoft or some other company decides you want to use the products. Hmm. And that's not the most efficient way. So when we added a practice area that involved working with a lot of medical providers, for example, we sat down and we created custom screens and tools to make that practice area more efficient. And it, it has saved us countless hours. And that's because when we saw the problem, instead of saying, oh, we got a problem, we just, you know, the three or four of us who were here, we sat down and we said, we're going to, you know, come up with a solution. And my associate handles most of those cases. But if she can't handle a case, I can open up that file, look at the information that she's put in, and I could run with her files as though I had been handling them from day one. So you've got to be able to be nimble with 
either what you have or to adapt what you have or or buy or get what you need if it's not really readily available. So we changed practice areas um, and made certain that we did that that our technology didn't drag us back. Love it. That's super cool. I'd love to talk about kind of shifting gears a little bit in regards to kind of working remotely. It's a big topic, but I'd love to hear about from your perspective. So how does your firm operate? Can everyone work remotely? Is everyone encouraged to work remotely or or is it more centralized in office? And then what is your thoughts and, and what advice would you give to other law firms on everyone in the office, hybrid model or fully remote? We are and have always been actually a sort of flexible place to be. My associate my and my paralegals worked with me here and at other firms for years. And my associate both have the flexibility to work remotely, to work on site, and have done so in a hybrid way, which also allowed me to hire really good people who have family, you know, they have the typical family concerns that so many, you know, lawyers and staff do, Mm. but they can do it that way because we make sure they have the technology remotely or here. When the pandemic hit, we looked at each other and went, okay, we'll work remotely and we'll see you in a few weeks in person. Obviously the few weeks turned into months and months and over and, you know, far more, but we didn't skip a beat because everything was digitized. We were used to working that way. Since, you know, things have gotten to a newer normal, we are in the office. Our office is an old house, so we're all socially distant. I'm in the living room. Um, Pam, my paralegals in the kitchen and my associates up in a bedroom, but we can do it. And part of the reason we're in the office is because we we like being with each other. But if, uh, you know, my associate last week or two school has been out and she's had to go help with her kids and stuff. So she works remotely. And when she gets the work done is whenever she gets the work done. And without that flexibility, she doesn't work for me and she wouldn't have come here. Mm. So I get good people. And, and that's sort of the message I try to tell my colleagues. It's like, you want to have the best people. And to do that, you've got to be flexible for them more than making them bend for you. And, you know, if we have a deadline or something major, I know it's going to get done. Whether it's accomplished with Krista working nine at night from home or being here at eight in the morning, I don't really care. The work gets done. Very cool. Thanks for sharing. Tell me about from the judicial standpoint and and the the court systems uh, i know you i've done a little reading on you before we before we did this podcast and it sounds like you have a very good pulse on the legal system and and things like that so i'd love to hear your perspective on you know post pandemic where do you see the court systems going to as far as hybrid model or or yeah what are your thoughts on all of that well i think you're going to see a lot more of a hybrid model. What we learned and to me wasn't a surprise was that a lot of events that courts have in the past required attorneys to be present for can be handled remotely. Status matters, things like that. So that you don't have to drive and wait for 10 other cases to be called and you can do it online. You save the travel, you save the wear and tear and all of that. What we're seeing at least in Pennsylvania where I am is that courts are starting to return. And I think you're going to see more of that hybrid. I've presented eight oral arguments uh, via essentially, you know, WebEx and Zoom uh, since the pandemic hit. 
and they worked fine. But there is an intimacy of an oral argument that is much better still in person. I don't know that it has any impact on my cases per se, but there are times when it does. So I think what's going to happen is courts are going to give priority in person to events where they need, they might need to see a witness they or that type of thing, but recognize that for, you know, a pre-trial status conference that sets deadlines, you can do that by phone and it'll work really well. And it, it's it's just easier for everyone. You can still have a court reporter there and all of that. So courts, I think, are going to be more practical and also recognize that they don't need to make everyone appear every hearing every day, not in person. Fantastic. Fantastic. Thanks for sharing. I love to kind of switch gears here in regards to talking about some of your favorite tools. I'd love to hear what is, you know, one tool or maybe a couple tools that you would, I know you mentioned a couple at the beginning, but what's one that you're like, I will, you know, whether it's Zoom or Teams or, or what, what, yeah, what technology tool that you live and die by in regards to uh, that your firm really uh, appreciates and uses constantly? Well, it's interesting because if you had asked me that question before the pandemic, we would have said our case management software, Adobe Acrobat, Outlook and Word. And those are the main tools we used. We added during like day one of the pandemic, we added Teams, Microsoft Teams, uh, because we already had it on our systems. We had always been using it as sort of an internal chat, but suddenly we could see each other with the click of a mouse. And that really made it nice. It, it, it turned the pandemic from just we're sitting at home into, okay, here's an issue that's popped up. Let's talk about it. So those remain the main tools. When I get into litigation, I have different tools that I use, but particularly Acrobat, and our case management, they're involved in every aspect of our existence. I still believe that the single biggest efficiency booster for lawyers is case or manner management type products, uh, that they are the single biggest way to improve your efficiency. And if anything, the pandemic made us more focused to tweak it. Very cool. I'd love to talk a little bit more about Microsoft Teams. We use it internally and help our clients deploy it mm -hmm. as, a, as a great collaboration tool and a great internal tool, but also external tool. Do you use Microsoft Teams to communicate with your clients or is it more just an internal? We use it both ways. Uh, sometimes we'll use it externally. Microsoft keeps adding features to it and it's nice because if you have, you know, what's now Microsoft 365, you've already paid for it. Uh, so... We do use it, uh, I would say, more internally than externally, but we have set it up and worked with clients that way. We do use, uh, you know, WebEx also uh, with some in some events uh, where it's just a little more nimble than Teams, but Teams has been making so many changes that you almost have to follow it on a daily basis. But it's, it's a great tool. I wouldn't you know, I, I was thrilled that we could just click a button and, you know, we did not have to get into the rush to Zoom. Uh, we were already, you know, we were there and a lot of firms didn't realize they were already there. Uh, you know, because it has channels and all kinds of different features that uh, are really nice. And then, you know, the pandemic hits and Microsoft 
really pours its focus on. Yeah, no doubt. Especially with the the teams. I think Microsoft came out with a study a couple of months ago that teams had about 10 years of growth from a, a user growth standpoint, but then also just from a feature standpoint, they mm-hmm. just pumped a ton of money into it. And then also because of the pandemic, the, the usage case uh, exponentially increased, which was which was great. Fantastic. So it sounds like you used Teams for, for internal communication, a little bit for client communication, but then also use WebEx also as kind of the video conferencing for, for client communication. I'd love to hear about how you communicate with your clients and interact with your clients. The law firms we've been talking on this podcast series, you know, it's kind of a, a gambit of a variety of different forms of communication, everything from mail, you know, physical uh, snail mail to uh, texting, to email, to video conferencing, to phone calls, to in-person. Where do you see, you know, what are the primary mediums do you communicate with your clients in, and also you know, in conjunction with that, where do you see, see your clients in, in their preference for communication? Do they like it when you text them? Do they prefer in person? What are the primary areas you communicate with your clients and, and what, what do they prefer? Well, it's interesting because we have a, what is an unusual sort of practice. We have what I will call the public practice, excuse me, which are clients, the typical you know, what I'll call consumer type client, you know, and for those people, you know, there still is a a value of in-person meetings and we did them, you know, uh, shielded and masked and everything else. And we still meet with clients today I did in masks. So for them, we transformed more toward the Zoom video conferencing model during the pandemic. Uh, There are times when from a practical or ethical standpoint, you need to communicate with clients in writing. And we still do that, although we don't rely much on you know traditional snail mail for that. Uh, but there are times when we do. But a lot of our clients are lawyers. We represent them in ethics or disciplinary matters. We give them ethical guidance, or we represent a lot of medical providers in some of their matters relating to payment and dealing with insurance companies and those things. And that whole group of clients rarely, if ever, meets us uh, in person. We will tend to have an initial conference with, with new clients like that by some video technology. But after that, we're on the phone or we're email uh, all the time because they're professionals who just need the answer. They don't need to, we hold their hands in a different way uh, from the public. So for them, you know, there's a lot of those clients we've never met. I represent attorneys all over Pennsylvania who have need ethical guidance or, you know, God forbid they have disciplinary issues. And I would say at least three quarters, if not more of those clients, I have never met in person. And that had nothing to do with the pandemic. That's just the nature of that because of, of how the relationship begins. They're in, you know, podunk Pennsylvania, you know, we're essentially Philadelphia and they don't need to come here to get the representation. Technology though allows us to sort of do that, whether it's the communication or whatever, it sort of makes Pennsylvania, which is actually a very large physical state, a lot smaller from that perspective. And we feel like we know the clients well, even though if they walk in the room, some of them, I wouldn't know what they look like. Fascinating. Thanks for sharing. Yeah, definitely piqued my interest around geographical location 
have you found, you know, pre-pandemic, you know, in the pandemic and then post-pandemic, has your geographic area for servicing your clients changed? Do you find yourself servicing clients in new regions and then moving forward because of how uh, technology has changed, how we communicate? Do you find yourself, are you looking to expand into new geographic areas? Our client base for the attorneys has always been Pennsylvania because what we do, we don't need to be present for physical clients. We still are in the local area. But what has changed um, is a little bit of a different perspective from your question. One of the hats I wear is I chair the Pennsylvania Bar's Legal Ethics Committee, where we give guidance to lawyers relating to all kinds of ethical issues. And what the pandemic has shown is that a lot of the rules relating to the way lawyers practice, the ethical rules, have always been based on geography, and that those rules need to be reconsidered in light of technology. So if you happen to be, you know, let me ask you, where, where, where are you physically? What state right now? Uh, Oregon. Okay. So you're in Oregon and the pandemic hits and you go to Washington state where you're not licensed and you're an attorney, but all you're doing is handling your clients in Oregon. Well, from a practical standpoint, that may be considered the unauthorized practice of law because mm -hmm. you are physically in a state where you're not licensed practicing law, even though you're practicing law only in the state you're licensed. And we are seeing these types of issues percolate and the American Bar Association and my the Pennsylvania Bar, we've issued guidance saying that's permissible, but it's ignoring the fact that the reality is you really are practicing law where you're not licensed. And so I'm an advocate of having the rules of professional conduct revised to acknowledge that we aren't just geography based anymore and that technology has really transformed it. I, you know, I'm out where I am near Philadelphia. It seems like everyone, maybe except me, has a home on the New Jersey shore. Well, if you're not licensed in Pennsylvania and you're practicing there, you know, there's an argument that you're practicing a law without a license. It's not the intent of the rules. No one believes it is to punish lawyers who do that. They're not, you know, they're not hanging a shingle out and saying New Jersey people come to them, but it's still an issue. So the pandemic really made the lack of technology focus in the rules that govern attorney ethics. It really put a spotlight on that problem. Fascinating. Two questions in that vein of a problem. Number one, what is your opinion? Should people have to be in the physical state that they're that they're licensed and they're practicing? And then number two, if that's the case, what are the problems of them working virtually, let's say, in in Cancun, Mexico, or in another part of the country? See, I don't believe they need to be physically in this state. I think the rule is meant to be, or the rules are meant to say that you can only practice the type of law that you do in the state where you're licensed. So I shouldn't give guidance on uh, whatever, drafting a will to someone in the state of Delaware, which although close to me, I'm not licensed in. And we don't typically do that. I don't think you need to be present in a place uh, where you are licensed. I think the challenge is in some of the nuances. So in Pennsylvania, it's been always been considered appropriate that a lawyer licensed in Pennsylvania, if you have a client who also, you have to help them draft a contract in New Jersey, even though it applies Jersey law, you're still permitted to do that. Some states view it differently. Those are bigger issues, but I don't think you need to be where your license is 
is because, you know, uh, I regularly travel on business or I did before the pandemic and clients would call me all the time and I could be in Chicago or I could be in Texas and I'm only helping my clients, you know, with their Pennsylvania problem. So what's the difference where I am? especially in a, a world like this where you know you're virtual and we have virtual law offices where there's no physical offices um so you know and i know lots of instances i know someone very close to me who who works with someone who's a texas based who's a texas licensed lawyer lives in pennsylvania does all his work with texas clients in pennsylvania but he doesn't live in texas doesn't go to texas there's nothing wrong with that to me. Very interesting. Very cool. Thanks for sharing. Well, I'd love to kind of switch gears and talk around data security, cybersecurity. And I know you have lots of thoughts on this. So I'd love to hear, you know, from your perspective, what are the greatest threats to law firms? And then maybe what are some practical things law firms can do to ensure they are protecting their, their data and their clients' data? I really think that when it comes to data and uh, cybersecurity issues, law firms continue to lag behind the curve and not do as much as they should, particularly among the solo and small or even some mid-sized firm communities mm -hmm. where they assume that because problem isn't going to ever happen to them, just like we all assume we're not going to you know, walk out and get hit by a car or drop dead, it can happen. They're taking big chances and they don't do even some some of the basic cybersecurity uh, type protections. Um, they certain and so from my perspective, lawyers still need to do more in general, particularly, you know, big firms have IT departments. Uh, small solos, small and mid-sized firms typically don't, and they tend to let the, you know, I, we'll get, we'll take care of it later, but they're still targets because lawyers have confidential and sensitive information. They have clients, birth dates, social security numbers, medical records, things that in the wrong hand, uh, hands, you know, end up potentially being, uh, lucrative tools for, um, hackers. So they really need to sort of get their religious aha moment and understand that they're just as much of a target as anyone else and that they need to have the proper security firewalls, et cetera. And that if it's, you know, if it's out of their league, which it can be because they didn't, lawyers didn't go to school to be technology experts, then bring in people, but that costs money and they don't want to spend the money until of course they either get hacked or ransomware or a virus, you know, all of the things that happen because they didn't realize, oh, that link in that email, I shouldn't have clicked on it. Totally. That's super, super helpful. Couldn't agree more. And, and it's by definition, law firms hold a lot of sensitive data and they're definitely targeted especially the ones that don't have the security, like you mentioned, they're a larger firm. Fantastic. Any practical tips from the cybersecurity standpoint that you say, hey, here's some things that you know we've implemented that uh, whether it's MFA or cybersecurity training or, or yeah, I'd love to hear any thoughts you have on that in regards to practical cybersecurity things or law firms can do? Yeah, I mean, the first is the simple one, which is to make sure all of your systems are updated and that all of those things so that, you know, many people don't realize that every Tuesday is when Microsoft releases its patches. So we are typically 
updating our entire network within a day or so of that because that helps protect our network. So that's that's a simple thing to do. But, you know, they should be implementing, you know, um, you said MFA, most of these, most people may not even know, multi-factor authentication. That's that annoying uh, pop-up on your cell phone that gives you that code number to put in when you log into your bank. Well, that is an amazingly good piece of security uh, that's easy to implement. And it's only a matter of time before people get hacked. So that type of very practical, very simple measures matter. But so does training. So does education, explaining to people. Because for lawyers right now, and I try to follow you know, the news articles about it, one of the biggest concerns is something called spear phishing, where they or their clients receive emails that by very sophisticated uh, you know, cyber criminals that look exactly like the law firms. And I've had more than one instance where I know of law firms where clients uh, receive emails that are telling them, well, to pay your inheritance tax, we need you to wire money or something. And it looks so real that the client does it without calling the law firm. Well, that money is generally gone, and it's obviously probably in another country. But one, the lawyer should know about it. Two, the lawyer should educate staff about it. And three, lawyers have an obligation to their clients to make sure that the clients know, hey, I'm never going to ask you to send money or wire via email mm -hmm. uh, or something to that effect. Just like you will get communications from some banks and say, when you call us, we will never ask you for your password or something else. Well, lawyers have an obligation to educate clients the same way, but they may not even realize that they need the education before they can provide it to the client. Well said. Yeah, we've seen from our client base kind of an, uh, an exponential increase in socially engineered attacks. And, I, and that's what I think we're seeing across the board is most breaches or scams are not, you know, somebody breaking into your account or a brute force attack. They're actually you letting them in, right? And we're yeah. seeing it's the end consumer, the end user being the we weakest link. And uh, there's a study that came out that out of every 4,200 emails sent globally, one is a phishing email, whether it's a spear phishing or a traditional phishing email. And so it's, it's crazy. It's all out there and thinking before you click, right? And I mm. really love what you said as far as educating clients on like, hey, here's how we're going to communicate with you. Because that's something that happens all the time, especially, you know, we're, we're an IT provider and a yeah. typical IT scheme or a typical uh, uh, cybersecurity scheme is when somebody pretends to be the IT department right? Yeah. Calls up and says, Hey, we're the IT department. I need you to reset your password. Or I need you to go to this website to enter in your information or whatnot. And so it's so much around education and, and teaching people that it's, yeah, most of these things are not the brute force attack. It's actually a socially engineered where they're impersonating somebody or that's very common. And a lot of phone scams, we're seeing a lot yeah. of our clients get hit with just traditional phone scams where people are pretending to be somebody else and calling them up um, or, you know, snail mail or a lot of other things, you know, they're just, they're always, cyber criminals are always, uh, you know, thinking, unfortunately, one step ahead and, and thinking of creative new ways uh, to, to breach organizations. And yeah, so it's, there's a lot out there and, and education is, is a huge piece of that. Yeah. The weakest link is usually, you know, the lowest hanging fruit in your office or something. Mm. The, the, the person who just doesn't realize, uh, 
oh, uh, this is okay, but they you didn't teach them either. So, you know, even though you blame them, uh, did you educate them about the dangers? It's 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 typically that. Um, and, and we, see, you know, I've seen and heard all the phone scams and things like that. And they're, those people are good. They're smooth and they're there for a reason, you know, and they make no money doubt. or they wouldn't do it. No doubt. Yeah, exactly. Well said. Dan, thank you so much for, for talking today. And it's been a really interesting podcast. I know our audience is really going to enjoy hearing all your insights and your expertise. Thanks everyone for listening to the Best Tech Practices podcast for small organizations presented by NW Techs. To learn more about NW Techs and how we help small organizations tackle IT and cybersecurity challenges, visit us at nwtechs.com. Thanks again, Stan. Thank you. Thank you for having me.